Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. So, I, you guys, I think I'm going to apply for a new job. Ooh. Oh, that's exciting. Yeah, I'm going to apply for Director of National Intelligence. I heard the position's open. Yeah. I think I'm qualified. Anyone can <laughs> apply, apparently. So I've read a lot about the intelligence agencies. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I can count and name them. Mm-hmm. Um, but have you worked on intelligence for more than six, six and a half months? A little longer than that. Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. I don't have a clearance, but I don't think that's a problem anymore. Nothing no, apparently the president just hands them out to anybody. So what do you say? So there we go. We, we'd miss you, but yeah. there's nothing to say that in this administration you couldn't do both jobs. That's, you know, right. that's also another thing, too. We're all about multitasking. Everyone's mm-hmm. got a side gig. Mine will be running the intelligence community mm-hmm. and having a podcast. I mean, look, I think you would be a spectacular DNI in terms of doing the job, but I think everyone in this room knows Shane Harris is not getting confirmed by the Senate. <laughs> you know that's right. Also, I'm not changing my name to director. Hello and welcome to Rational Security, the You Too Can Be the DNI edition. I'm Shane Harris. You all can do it. Everyone out there listening is imminently qualified. If you've listened to this podcast for six or more months, you too may be qualified. <laughs> Frankly, you're overqualified <laughs> at that point. You're more qualified to be the deputy director of national intelligence, and that's who's actually apparently running things these days. <laughs> Oh, boy. Uh, I'm here in the Jungle Studio with my good friend Susan Hennessy. And David Priest is joining us this week. Hi, David. Hello. Ben and no, Tammy Ben and Tammy. Are, no, they are, they are somewhere. We have they're not, interviewing for the DNI. They're interviewing for the DNI as job. As we speak yeah, right they're, now. They're, they're out at, Liberty, at Crossing. Liberty Crossing. They're at the <laughs> They're going to tag team. They're going to be co-directors. Now, that would be something, right? It's like a part-time job here Can there, there be more than one director? I don't, I don't, think, think, I don't think that there is cannot. stipulated in the law, but I'm not sure that's an obstacle right now. <laughs> right? I mean, it is listen. stipulated in the law, actually. <laughs> Let's be clear. That law says a lot of things. It's not clear anybody's going to follow it. The law also says that the DNI shall have extensive national security experience mm-hmm. while mm-hmm. we're talking about the Define statute. extensive. Six months. Six months, you guys. Mm-hmm. Oh, boy. Um, if you haven't been paying attention, uh, this week on the podcast, President Trump said he will nominate a junior congressman and prominent Mueller critic as the next director of national intelligence. He has some other credentials, too, which we'll get to. Uh, CIA Director Gina Haspel has become a bulwark between the White House and the intelligence community and investigators probe connections between Middle East money and the White House. Um, so let's start with the big news. Uh, on Sunday, the president tweeted I will note after the news started leaking out in the press that he that, – that Dan Coates, the director of national intelligence, was going to uh, resign uh, in mid-August. Then he was going to nominate, though he hasn't yet, Congressman John Ratcliffe, who's a third-term congressman from Texas. Susan, let's quick, kind of quickly go through the bio of – since we've been talking about credentials, who is John Ratcliffe and just very briefly – what are the ostensible qualifications or resume credentials he brings to the job? And let's unpack some of that. Yeah, so we can, we can get through it pretty quick. Um, <laughs> Ratcliffe is, uh, you know, has been in Congress for six years. He's served on the Homeland Security Committee. Um, and I think he's been on the Intelligence Committee just this term. It's right. just this term. Just so this about term. Seven so months. he's yeah. new to it. Um, he formerly was the U.S. attorney, although he was actually the interim U.S. Mm-hmm. attorney, I think, for the Eastern District of Texas. So, right, he's sort of like being the acting U.S. attorney while, um, you know, in between two Senate confirmed positions. Um, and he claims that he's participated in, you know, some significant uh, terrorism prosecutions and some significant um, uh, sort of immigration enforcement actions. Um, And uh, there's a lot of questions right now about the extent to which his representations about his involvement are in the realm of, you know, grotesque exaggeration or sort of crossing the line into being outright dishonest. Mm -hmm. There's definitely some exaggeration in there. So 
it, it clearly the thing that he is most known for uh, and probably when he popped up on most Americans' radar, honestly, was last week now at the Mueller hearing where he was from the, his perch on judiciary and intel really lit into Bob Mueller uh, along the lines of how could you possibly have investigated the president when you said you weren't going to offer a recommendation for prosecution. He's in the past talked about the Steele dossier as the origin of the Russia probe. He's very much in the camp, right, of this sort of, you know, believing that there was kind of a corrupt conspiracy theory behind the Russia probe that was launched to actually try to keep Donald Trump from becoming president. So a question for both of you. I'd love to get your take. I mean, what does it mean that this is who the president has gone to, someone who's a conspiracy theorist and a loyalist? David, you start. It's a, it's a central casting for Trump, really, because he looked like somebody that fits the Trump mold for a job like this, right? He's somebody who goes on TV, energetically defends the president, and energetically criticizes those that the president doesn't like. So in that way, there is a parallel with another intelligence nominee a couple of years ago, which is Mike Pompeo, mm. who was probably on the president's radar primarily because he had been so full-throated in the Benghazi hearings going after one Hillary Clinton. Right. And very much on the, on the fringe of even that committee. Yeah. True. And in this case, John Ratcliffe, he was on our radar before the last couple of weeks because looking at the testimony, the depositions of Peter Strzok and Lisa Page when those came out, John Ratcliffe was one of the more aggressive questioners in, in those depositions, focusing much more on their texts to each other and how they felt about each other than he actually did on the Russian interference mm. itself, which, mm. which of course, Strzok was uh, very involved in at the beginning in terms of investigating it. So he was on that radar, but I'm not sure that would have hit Trump's uh, attention at that point. Instead, it was his performance last week when people watching the testimony were actually saying to each other, wow, it looks like he's performing for an audience of one. Yeah, and it was performative too. Susan, what do you think is the signal that this is sending here? Yeah, so I agree that Ratcliffe's testimony or sort of line of questioning last week was certainly a performance. And remember, there'd already sort of been news reports that Dan Coats was on his way out. There were suggestions of Fred Flights and some other people who might be um, sort of trial balloons for the uh, for the DNI position. And so I would imagine that Ratcliffe probably knew his name was somewhat in the mix. Um, you know, a lot of sort of the response to this, I you know, it's has been funny to me in part because. There's been one feature of sort of a Dan Coats love fest going on about people being like, you know, Dan Coats highly respected in the intelligence community and like being forced out in this, you know, by tweet, which is, of course, how all cabinet careers eventually come to an end right. in the Trump administration. Um, you know, but as the resident, I don't know, Dan Coats skeptic of the podcast, I think I can crown myself. You know, it's interesting to see somebody like Ratcliffe nominated because it really does clarify the role of Dan Coats. And I think I've actually asked before, what is the point of Dan Coats? And now I know what the point of Dan Coats was. And it's to not be John Ratcliffe, <laughs> right? Like Dan Coats' role was, you know, whenever he appeared before um, congressional committees, he told the truth. Uh, Again, under oath, mm -hmm. uh, you know, lawfully uh, compelled to tell the truth in that circumstances. But he didn't lie and, and he was uh, honest in that circumstance. Um, and, and sort of by all accounts, he appeared to get out of the way of the day-to-day, -day, right? So lots of indications that the deputy DNI Sue Gordon, longtime intelligence professional, um, you know, devoutly apolitical, nonpartisan, you know, actually really widely respected, um, appears to be sort of managing a lot of the day-to-day -day operations. So um, now you have somebody like John Ratcliffe sort of name being in. Apparently, Devin Nunes was offered the position and declined. So when it's a job that not even Devin Nunes wants, that's really or was saying afraid something. that his Republican colleague in the Senate, might, uh, who runs the committee that have to vet him, was not really interested in that either. <laughs> yes, something uh, that John Ratcliffe probably should have thought of before instantly responding yes, because with the issues with his resume. This is now something that gets in the way of what could have been a contentious but probable confirmation. Yeah. And instead now we're looking at is this one going to have legs? Yeah. Well, this is – I mean this is – and Susan, I mean to ask you this question as a lawyer too. I mean look. We all know the classic Washington story of somebody who gets promoted to some senior staff position. You find out that they've made up their resume or they got their degree from some diploma mill and it just, it, it just obliterates them, right? But speak to the, the particular grievance that people might have 
with Ratcliffe if what he's exaggerating about is his time as a federal prosecutor on not just terrorism cases but this one specific one involving something called the, called the Holy Land Foundation. Yeah, so what Ratcliffe uh, sort of claimed to be a part of or, or sort of exaggerated his involvement in is this case called USV, the Holy Land Foundation. And this is basically sort of one of the landmark cases in which the government tried to sort of go after terrorist financing and terrorist organization financing sort of post 9-11. Um, it, it was a really complicated, difficult case. It was a case that the government drew a ton of heat over. And so I think it's the case that the prosecutors who actually worked on it, um, you know, to have somebody then come in years later and sort of appropriate their work, I think it's kind of, uh, is especially offensive. And it's not, like, this is not lying or exaggerating about some kind of nothing case that didn't, that wasn't really significant. This was a really, really significant case, legally significant, politically significant at the time. And so it really does suggest something. Um, so it appears that what ended up happening is he was involved in the investigation of potential germ misconduct after the trial. And so somehow he spun that into sort of being involved in, in the, uh, the actual terrorism prosecution. You know, to David's point, it's like the total lack of vetting, right? So what the president did was tweeted out that Dan Coats was leaving. Um, you know, his form of sort of firing Dan Coats didn't even let Dan Coats get his letter out. And we can talk about Coates' letter as well in a minute. Um, and also announcing this new person, you know, apparently not doing any outreach to the committees, for example, the SSCI or places that are actually going to have to confirm this guy, not doing any vetting, a Google search, things like, is his resume accurate? There are actually offices at the White House that are supposed to be focused on vetting these kinds of officials. And, you know, one, it leads to exactly the kind of problems you have right now, which is you if you don't vet people, then the public vets them after they get nominated. It also speaks to just the carelessness with which Trump views this DNI role, right? He doesn't really care about having someone who is an experienced national security practitioner who's actually going to lead the intelligence agencies. All he cares about is sort of a loyalist and getting Coates out of there, who he has viewed as as somehow obstructive to sort of his desire to, quote, clean house in the IC. I think the surprise here is that there's surprise here in that fact about Trump, because we've seen it over and over again. Mm -hmm. We've seen it with uh, Veterans Affairs. We've seen it with other positions where, based on a whim, based on instinct, based on the way someone looks, he nominates someone or doesn't. So I remember back when he nominated Jim Mattis to be Secretary of Defense, and it sure seemed from his comments like he was nominating him, at least in part, because he liked the supposed nickname Mad Dog, Mm -hmm. and that made him sound good. Mm -hmm. The first time Bolton came up for National Security Advisor, you recall the reporting was, he didn't think he should be National Security Advisor because of his mustache. It shouldn't surprise us that Donald Trump doesn't care about the national security credentials. He cares about how John Ratcliffe looked on TV and whether he was full-throated enough in his defense of Trump and his attacking of Trump's enemies. And I think, too, it's, it's, it's a measure of how Donald Trump also – I mean, he, it's not that he views his cabinet as irrelevant, but he ultimately decide, thinks that he's the one in charge. And so the mm-hmm. people who are in the cabinet are sort of more like advisors and they're kind of doing their thing. And, yeah, they're probably operating stuff down the weeds he doesn't want to get into. But at the end of the day, I think he does – view the executive branch as something that he largely runs through his own decision-making, largely runs through the media and through Twitter. And that may be another reason why I think Dan Coates was – uh, would often get sort of cross with him because the crosswise with him is not only was he contradicting him in public, but from my reporting, there were times privately where if Dan Coates – you know, in the course of a briefing in the Oval Office, if the president said something that Coates thought wasn't true, wasn't accurate, would debate with him and kind of engage on it. And I wonder if he looked at Dan Coates like, what are you doing here? Like, why are you talking to me this way? I mean, you don't have that. I mean, not to say that he felt he didn't have a job, but he must look at him and think like, that's not your job to contradict me. Yeah. Or the problem is, is, of course, Trump is wrong and that is the job, right? Yeah, so, exactly. No, look, a lot of people, totally reasonable people have for a long time sort of debated whether or not the DNI should exist at all, whether or not the office should be scaled back. There are real reasons to wonder whether or not the DNI serves an important role, whether or not it inserts another layer of sort of bureaucracy, if it actually corrects for the deficiencies in the IC that it was designed to correct for. All legitimate questions. But- not right now for this nomination. 
No, but but look, but it, but in general, there are sort of there are these questions, and, and something that the Trump administration talked about whenever they first came in, and that's not like a that's not a crazy thing. Mm-hmm. That said, you know, under one, the DNI isn't going on anywhere under sort of the current political uh, environment. There, you know, the idea of abolishing the DNI isn't going to happen. Um, and you know, look, the DNI does play a role. Um, it certainly did play a role uh, whenever James Clapper was the DNI, uh, and that's sort of it, it's it's the exact opposite of what you're just describing as Trump's view. So the role of the DNI and the role of the intelligence community in general is to push accurate, actionable information to decision makers. It's not to decide the national security strategy of the United States. It's not to be a deep state against the president. All it is is just to speak the truth and to make sure that whenever United States decision makers, mostly at the political level, are deciding what to do in a military intelligence or foreign policy context, that they have the information they need. And it has to be accurate information. And we have lots of history in this country of what happens and how things tend to go wrong when that information isn't accurate and and nonpartisan and not based on sort of the, the political preferences of the person receiving it. And so what Trump objected to in Dan Coats was Dan Coats being willing to do the job of the DNI rather than being the person who I don't know, was going to launder or spin intelligence or prevent it from coming up to the president in inconvenient times. And so, look, Ratcliffe, even though people actually don't know that much about him because he hasn't been in this world for that long and he doesn't have much experience or sort of a record, you know, one of the the things that I think makes people suspicious of him is that Trump nominated him and that he said yes. And so the idea is, Anybody who would want that job under these conditions, anyone who would sign on to Trump's vision of this role is inherently suspect because you are talking about signing on to a vision that is antithetical to the core basic mission of the intelligence community. It's hard to believe that John Ratcliffe doesn't know that this is a president who wants people to tell him what he wants to hear. And anybody who even has six and a half months of experience with intelligence knows the role of intelligence is to tell the president what he needs to hear. This president doesn't want to hear what he needs to hear. He wants to hear what he wants to hear. So I think you're exactly right. Ratcliffe, if he has thought about this at all, has probably thought, yeah, I can do that. Yeah, that part of the job he's got. But look, can I make a super optimistic prediction about mm-hmm. what might happen here? It does seem as though Ratcliffe's nomination is foundering a little bit, in mm-hmm. part because they didn't do any time to actually usher support for him, right? Vetting is not just about figuring out if there's a landmine out there. It's also like making sure that you have <coughs> members on your side. And whenever you have Richard Burr saying, I, I'll commit to regular order, and Mitch McConnell saying, <laughs> I'll get back to you on it, that means like, right, they, they learned about this for the first time right. through tweet, which uh, which tends tends to be something that irritates those people. That's to put it mildly. Yeah, mm-hmm. yeah and I will just say that the uh, White House has, yeah, as of Wednesday, not uh, officially submitted his nomination yet. Uh, we're heading into the August recess. It would not be uh, the first time maybe a nomination was just kind of left unsubmitted and just sort mm-hmm. of withered. Exactly. And Sue Gordon is now the acting DNI. We've seen this well, over once he, once he August leaves, 15th. August 15th, as of August yeah. fifteenth, she will be the acting DNI, and that's a statutory. Uh, there's a statutory rule about that. So we'll unlike, see if that happens. We may be talking about that. In right. Two we weeks. we may have to have a conversation about that. But unlike some other agencies where Trump has been able to sort of put a favored person, and so we are going to have a, a very uh, competent acting DNI, a DNI who will be many many Republicans in Congress will be very comfortable with that. And so you know, I, I think maybe the best case scenario, uh, sort of outcome here is Ratcliffe's nomination doesn't go anywhere. Trump loses interest as he so often does. And just like we went to, all right, I guess Pat Shanahan can be the, the sec def. Mm-hmm. Well, Mike Esper, congratulations. You're the sec def instead where he just kind of, he's like, I don't really care about this position. I don't have a favored person. I can't get my people through. So fine. If the outcome of all of this was to have Sue Gordon be formally the DNI, that would certainly not be a bad outcome. It would be a bad outcome that would make a lot of Republicans happy, would make a lot of Democrats, especially sort of moderate national security Dems happy. Um, And so one might cross their fingers that the president will lose interest in the issue. There is an off-ramp for him here. Um, Speaking of senior intelligence officials, you might call her the last woman standing, Gina Haspel, CIA director. 
Uh, folks may remember a couple of weeks ago when I was not on the pod because I was off in London. Is that where you were? That's what I was doing, baby. Now you've seen the fruits of my of my, my transatlantic labor. Um, so we're going to talk about... Uh, I'm just a- imagining like following Gina Haspel around on the street or something. <laughs> Director Haspel. <laughs> or just walking around London randomly saying, excuse me. Excuse me. Did anyone know? talk to Gina when Does she was here? Does anyone here know Gina Haspel? Because that's how reporting happens, I understand. That's exactly right. how it happens. But to that point of fact, I did talk to a lot of people who knew her when she mm-hmm. was there, when she was chief of station in London twice, which is uh, unusual to be chief of station twice and in such a coveted plum position as, the, as London Station, um, which is kind of a – sign that you are bound for big and beautiful things in the CIA. Um, but I've got this long profile out in the post and because we're not above log rolling and it seems like a really good time to talk about it. Um, <clears throat> you know, the, the, the thrust of this piece and David, I'll kind of start with you on it, that Hassel's always impressed me as a reporter as one of the most frustrating subjects to cover because I've, I've, I've sort of, you know, she is not open. She did not talk to me for the profile. She's never given an on-the-record interview to any journalist. Uh, people who know her said, you know, like, oh, how's it going? And I said, it's a lot like climbing a flat surface. And they kind of laughed. They're like, yeah, that sounds like Gina. Uh, she's, she's somebody who doesn't really, you know, give a lot. And that is also not so unusual, perhaps, in a CIA director. This is a secretive job. She spent her entire career undercover. These seem like qualities that actually really come in handy right now when you're trying to run an agency and to some degree kind of stay out of the crosshairs of your boss being the president. Right on. It's actually a, a good fit in some ways. Mm-hmm. But she she is indeed a throwback in many ways to the era of intelligence before Instagram, Twitter, and all of the other outreach that the CIA and other agencies do. But there is a difference. Is Even back in the days when you weren't having a CIA director go on the Sunday news programs or give public speeches every few months as someone like John Brennan ended up doing. Even before that, you still had the Alan Dulles or the Dick Helms who would have informal sessions Uh, with reporters, who would go to Georgetown and take part in those meetings, big think about national security. And there's no evidence that the salons are seeing frequent Gina Haspel Uh sightings. So to me, there is that key difference is maybe she's a throwback to that older era of intelligence when it was not something to be discussed publicly at all times. But she's not doing the other side of it that in olden days people people had the advantage of, which is to get some insight into what is intelligence about right now? What are they thinking? How is it intersecting with the Hill and the White House? Even that is absent. And so we're left to read tea leaves that are few and far between. This profile actually moves us forward in some ways because you, you brought together a lot of different information about her, one of which that struck me was that you reported that in meetings with Trump and other top officials, that Haspel has told the president things like, if you expel a large number of Russian diplomats from the U.S., Moscow will read that as a strong response. Well, earlier you said that Dan Coats would sometimes, from your reporting, get into back and forths with the president. And in this case, you report, she just put that out there and then let it go. Right. Didn't argue about policy. Right. Didn't try to correct him on things he said that was wrong. Instead, just put one thing out there, the word strong, which he likes, mm-hmm. but which, which was likes. true to the intelligence reporting yeah. that was going to him. That is a strategy that may have left her in good stead so far to deliver the truth to the president, but in small manageable bites mm-hmm. and not to push back because she doesn't see it as her job to correct the president on things he gets wrong in terms of interpretation or policy. I think that's right. And Susan, to your point, I mean, like what an intelligence director or intelligence agency director is supposed to be is the person who says, my job is to tell you the facts in an unvarnished way. She absolutely sees that as her job and and, and very much studiously tries to avoid anything that smacks of policy. Yeah. I mean, I I do think that there's an interesting lesson to be learned from sort of Haspel's approach. And that's no good comes from Trump cabinet officials engaging with the media. Mm-mm. That actually, uh, when they try and defend the president's indefensible statements, they uh, render themselves less effective in their roles vis-a-vis their workforce. They reduce their own personal credibility. Uh, if they actually uh, speak publicly and are honest and sort of candid about uh, in a way that is contradicts the president, they draw political fire to themselves and sort of get themselves embroiled in what who 
whoever of the moment, you know, contradicts the president on X, Y, or Z. And so, you know, her head down approach of just refusing outright to engage with the public at all is actually something that appears to have served her uh, reasonably well. That's a shame because also one of the roles of a director of a place like the CIA is to be as transparent as possible in an, in an, in a situation that has lack of transparency, to be someone who is forward leaning and keeping Congress, you know, fully and currently apprised of all intelligence matters that are ongoing. And, you know, some would even argue that the job is not just to put intelligence on the table and walk away and say, well, I've done my job because I told the president the truth, but to make sure that it's actually informing policy. Right. And what and those policy outcomes him. could be. Yeah. Exactly. You know, but look, I, I don't envy anyone who's the head of an intelligence agency, whether, you know, sort of Senate confirmed or, or not at this point, you know, because the additional job is also to keep your agency together in this period of time in which you have a DNI who's been not who is going to be nominated, who's talking about cleaning house, that's talking about this deep state, this new bar focus, Bill Barr's focus on sort of the investigate the investigators seems an awful lot like it might be focused on what was happening at the CIA in ways that really do jeopardize long-term sort of agency interests, things like not having that work second-guessed, not having that work made public, being able to protect important sources and methods, classified sources and methods. And so, you know, she's in a position in which you really do have to fight on every single front you know, that said, this kind of puts your head down. There, There is also an element in which, especially if what she's seeing inside is disturbing, and there are indications that there might be disturbing stuff going on in terms of the, the U.S. intelligence community setting itself up for an intelligence failure, the president not knowing what's going on. As a patriot, as a as a CIA director, there are also some um, moral obligations. There are some obligations to the Constitution. There are some obligations to the people who risk their lives to get intelligence that it doesn't end up sitting on a table somewhere where no one cares about it. Um, and so, again, the enigma of Hassel is because she hasn't engaged on it, you have to sort of project based on these little pieces of information. And so maybe you're doing it fairly or not. Um, Let me bring up a related point here, which is I think you've described what we see, like the tip of the iceberg, but we don't see everything that's under the water. Perhaps her strategy, and this would be a logical thing to do, is yes, keep my head down, pull the equivalent of Jim Comey hiding in the blue drapes when it comes to public and to the president. Because the president, we fetishize the president in terms of intelligence, that it's all about that meeting with the president and getting a message on the president's desk. This president, more than perhaps any other in our lifetimes, is not running the majority of foreign policy and national security. He will hone in on one thing, get obsessed by it. But do you have any belief that he is doing day-to-day management of relations with Latin America or sub-Saharan Africa or all these other things? But guarantee you, Gina Haspel is. She and her officers are still out there briefing assistant secretaries of state Defense, Treasury, Homeland Security, others across the national security bureaucracy, probably even cabinet secretaries, quietly, effectively. They're not making a big stink about it, but she is probably getting the intelligence to the people who are actually doing those jobs, perhaps just as or more effectively than past directors. But on the thing we tend to focus on, which is what about that relationship with the commander in chief? Perhaps she's keeping her head down there and staying out of trouble so that she can continue to be effective where most of national security policy is being executed. I totally agree with that. And to that point, there was a line in the story from a former official uh, who's still in touch with people in the building. It said, you know, one of the reasons that some people, particularly in the operations directorate, liked Pompeo, who I think, safe to say, Probably if you took a majority – if it took a poll, I'm not sure you'd get majority. It wouldn't be prom that. king at It'd the CIA Let's prom. just put it that way and we talk about that in the story too. But is uh, this person said people in operations really liked him because he didn't require a lot of mother may I. Yeah. He sort of enabled the Let operations people. Go to your jobs, right? And my understanding is that culture still very much persists. So to your point, David, about – you know, not having, uh, you know, necessarily the president breathing down your neck because you're keeping your head down also has certain advantages, which there may be things that in this administration you are just freer to do uh, that you couldn't have done. For instance, in the Obama administration, when the White House exercised a significant amount of influence and control over the CIA, which of course was being run by John Brennan, who himself, I think, safe to say, was probably more in the micromanaging side of things. Let's say he is a micromanager, but a little bit more of a kind of, um, 
I've talked to people saying you know, like a hesitation or, or more of a deliberation that went on. My sense is that that's kind of not that like the reins have been taken off at the CIA, but it's much more of a kind of forward-leaning, a bit more risk-taking kind of culture than it was uh, in previous years, which maybe it would be regardless of who was president and Gina Haspel were director. But certainly that, I think that's helped by the fact that you've got a president that – for as much as he is fighting publicly with the intelligence agencies, I doubt he knows the first thing that's going on over at Langley on a daily basis. And that's probably a good thing. Yeah, for her, from her perspective, it's good. <laughs> I think that's right. I mean, look, historically, intelligence agencies get themselves in trouble, occasionally very big trouble, in precisely those moments in which there are no grown-ups at home. Um, and, and the lunatics are running the right, asylum. They're feeling like, well, like they've loosened up the reins a little <laughs> bit and discretion has migrated down. You know, there's a reason why there are lots and lots and lots of rules and procedures and constraints over the intelligence community. And lawyers. And, lawyers. and, and that's because it's a high-stakes area. Uh, it occurs in secret. There isn't natural transparency. Um, the risks of getting it wrong are really significant. Uh, the risks of intruding into uh, the civil liberties of Americans, people you know, abroad. It's just an area in which actually I don't think we should be comforted by this idea of, well, don't worry, the, like, the, the White House isn't paying attention to it and the CIA is off like doing their own thing and, and, and that's all fine and good. That's something that gives me a little bit of anxiety because I think, oof, like, well, who's watching all this stuff? Which is not to say there's like bad people that are waiting to get away with stuff, but everybody loosens up a little bit. You know, that's the time in which you start to have, you know, some potentially compromised decision making. And with that you know, dynamic, Susan, I'm curious, with uh, Gina Haspel there, do you feel more or less confident if, let's say, John Ratcliffe were there instead of Gina Haspel. No, I mean, of course, having like a, yeah. you know, As a, a DCI career, a political, uh, you know, yeah. experienced person is is sure. preferable over whatever John sure. Ratcliffe is. I, you know, but I, I again, like the, the, the lowering of the bar in the Trump administration is pretty dramatic. You know, one thing I thought that was really interesting about your story, Shane, was the focus on sort of the U.S.-U.K. relationship. Yeah. They love her. And the little bit of insight into the way that as there's really these fractured ties at the top, those personal and political relationships are being held fast a level below that. And I actually think that's um, – it's – comforting information, right, to think sort of, okay, you know, these long-term ties and the fact that it's somebody who has this long intel relationship, you know, it's not unlike what we saw with the Germans sort of immediately post-Snowden when the political levels are really going after one another, uh, certainly not a lot of support for Americans in the domestic polit German political context at the time, and yet those intel relationships remained rock solid. And Whenever we go through periods of kind of wild political upheaval, um, you know, I don't know we've ever seen anything like what we're seeing right now, but um, but certainly there have been periods of, of uh, tumultuous periods in the past. You know, those those national security and intelligence sharing and intelligence cooperation relationships are sort of the ties that bind in a way because it's the part where everybody watches one another's backs. Everybody has to keep one another safe. And if you don't work together, you actually can't have a full picture of all your threats. And so, you know, I, I do wonder, like, when this era is over, if one of the things that has sort of saved us and, and sort of kept people safe doesn't actually end up being, in some cases, the personal relationships of people like Gina Haspel, who, you know, knows who to call, is a trusted voice, even whenever the president of the United States can't be trusted by, you know, what should be our closest allies. You know who another trusted voice is that would make a good DNI? Shane Harris. Oh, sure. <clears throat> yeah. You could trust me. I'm a reporter. Shane would rather be a CIA director. <clears throat> it's, just, it's such a bad He'd just be job. like, bring me all the files. Unredact them all. Like, first off, bring we're starting with the aliens. No more bullshit. Give me the aliens. <laughs> maybe that'll be – maybe Ratcliffe will finally come in. And suddenly Shane's a fan. Yeah. I mean, and come on. Like, I mean, like, what if, what if somebody actually testified being like, what would your first prayer to be? Like, unlock aliens. the aliens. It's aliens. Aliens. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to say it's mm -hmm. aliens. He might as well. It might help his chances. 
it would get the attention off of the terrorism prosecutions. <clears throat> that's sure. for sure. Who cares if you unless didn't they were aliens. and neither of those things exist. So <laughs> he did it's say on his website that he locked up three hundred aliens, but he wasn't talking about those aliens. How do you know? <laughs> oh, maybe that's what he meant. We're looking in the wrong place. Uh, all right, now for something completely different. Uh, there have been a number of stories uh, back in the past week. Uh, ABC, New York Times. We have done some reporting on this at the Post about. A somewhat confusing uh, investigation uh, essentially into the ties between very close friends and advisors over the years of Donald Trump, particularly a man named Tom Barrick, who is a top campaign fundraiser, close friend of the president, chaired the inaugural committee, uh, and his connections as a kind of lobbyist, fixer, broker uh, to people in the Middle East and whether or not – particularly the UAE – and Saudi Arabia and whether or not this in any way influenced U.S. policy. And I am kind of squishy on the word lobbyist fixer broker because it's not exactly clear and the reporting is about this what Tom Barrick was doing when he was sort of sitting in the middle of conversations between powerful moneyed and official interests in the Middle East and people on the Trump campaign who were doing things like writing policy speeches, whether he was actually acting as a sort of uh, broker or self-serving kind of person trying to just be in the mix or whether he was actually working for a foreign interest and therefore needs to register under FARA, which a lot of people failed to do uh, connected to this administration. And we now call them federal inmates. Um, but I'll just read from the lead here of the Times boarding because it kind of sets it up interestingly. Uh, as Donald J. Trump was preparing to deliver an address on energy policy in May 2016, so this is in the campaign, Paul Manafort, as campaign chairman, had a question about the speech's contents for Tom Barrick. Uh, quote, are you running this by our friends, Manafort asked in a previously undisclosed email to Mr. Barrick, whose real estate and investment firm does extensive business in the Middle East. Mr. Barrick was, in fact, coordinating the language in a draft of the speech with Persian Gulf contacts, including Rashid al-Malik, an Emirati businessman who was close to the rulers of the United Arab Emirates. So, I mean, David, maybe just start with this to you. This is one of these areas where it sort of treads this line between is this illegal mm-hmm. or is it just unethical? The legalities yeah. seem a little bit harder to prove. The ethics seem a little less ambiguous. Yeah, let's let's start at the bottom of the ladder. This is just weird. This yeah. is this is a campaign speech being vetted by foreign officials before being delivered to the American public for an American election. When I worked at the State Department, we did lots of vetting of joint documents with foreign governments. That's part of the deal of diplomacy. But in an American election campaign, it hits that first rung on the ladder, which is, this is just weird. <laughs> Above that is unethical. Not all things that are weird mm-hmm. are unethical. They can be, but they need not be. This seems unethical in the context of the election to say we need to vet this with other countries before he presents it to the American people. Not all things that are unethical are illegal. I'm not a lawyer. I'm not sure how this could be illegal unless it gets into some issues you've raised of what uh, Tom Barrick was doing. But in terms of the speech itself, words in a speech being run by a foreign friend, it doesn't seem to be illegal. But we should stop putting that up as the standard for, for judging something. The ethics of this are highly questionable. Yeah, so um, it's plainly unethical to the extent it's not illegal. And I, I, we just don't have enough information to judge whether or not sort of on Barrick's side it's there's a foreign agent's registration issue that's um, highly fact-specific. Fact and um, uh, this reporting might raise questions, um, but I don't I, I don't think it's sort of enough to level an accusation against him. On the Trump campaign side, um, you know, there, there's – saving grace might be that he wasn't they weren't government officials at that point it's a campaign and so the ethics rules regarding sort of reporting and monetization of uh, of official office um, those actually don't attach until someone is is sworn in and so you know they're they're doing all this stuff in the campaign period i, I don't know that it ends up being criminal. That said, uh, there's lots of signs that this kind of behavior followed them into office, um, you know, in this sort of this grifters, rogues galley that uh, that surrounds the Trump uh, sort of White House all the time, always sort of attempting to, to make a dollar and, and including people like Jared Kushner and including people like Trump himself, who, of course, uh, did not actually divest from all of his foreign financial interests. You know, like, I, I think it's it's worth noting, like, this is the heart of counterintelligence. Mm. So 
imagine like imagine so Trump is a presidential candidate and presidential candidates get defensive CI briefings and presidents make speeches and presidents obviously get uh, counterintelligence information like the whole point of counterintelligence is to safeguard US decision making from foreign influence to make sure that people aren't being influenced by forces that aren't really looking out for the best interests of the United States as they understand them and one of the sort of anti-anti-Trump critiques that we've seen, you know, from sort of the the intellectual defense of, of the Trump administration has been, you know, this is all criminalization of policy differences. He just has a different view on Russia. He has a different view on the Saudis. And so what you people are trying to do is take a policy difference and say that it's actually a crime. And this is a pretty good example of that we're not talking about the criminalization of good faith policy differences. We're talking about objecting to foreign interests and individual financial interests being preferenced over the national interests of the United States. That's the whole point of all of this. This is the whole idea of public office. You come in, you swear an oath, and you're supposed to be working for us, not your own pocketbook, not your shady friends. And so the concern here that for me, what really is the concern is to what extent has this endured? You know, um, Barrick has continued to be this sort of informal White House advisor. Again, informal White House advisors should be setting off alarm bells because that's a way of saying influence without accountability. Mm-hmm. It's the reason why roles like Jared and Ivanka's are so problematic because it's influence without accountability. And accountability is in the form of rules, financial transparency, ethics requirements, right? All of those things that are fundamentally about safeguarding sort of the the purity of U.S. national decision making. And so, you know, again, I've said it in the past, I'll say it now, like it's the corruption, stupid. The story of this administration is not going to end up being collusion with Russia or Stormy Daniels or any of the other thing that the the enduring story of, of who Trump is and the way they have debased the White House is one of graft and of waste, fraud, and abuse. And and I think this is another blazing alarm that something really bad is going on in this sort of realm. If only we could come up with a a phrase that this or another administration could use to address this kind of thing, something Something like drain the swamp, maybe. <laughs> right, right, right. That could get at this. Right. Maybe we should try. Maybe we should try that. This is, I mean, this is like this is that's exactly right. This is the definition of swampy, and in any other time, uh, well, maybe not any other time, but we would call this for what it is. Or you would see certainly if this was a Democratic president doing this, and I don't mean to engage in the same you know shoe on the other foot thing, but it's worth noting again here, um, you know, Democratic presidents when they have engaged in this kind of cronyism. Uh, especially when it touched on things like campaign finance, were absolutely called to the carpet, and you know, and rightly so in some cases. What also strikes me here is that there's an element of you could look at a guy like Tom Barrick and say Tom Barrick is just somebody who likes to be in the middle of things, and if he makes some money with his guys, great. If he helps shape some policy that he thinks is maybe good policy, great, fine. But there's a more really tangible kind of result of this, which is Jerry Kushner, who is not only in charge of the Middle peace process is in touch with all of these people. The conduits are set up and the Middle East peace process, what little we know about it, is largely – it looks like a business deal and is trying to be based on financial incentives. And Kushner also himself has personal non-divested yes. financial stakes in the outcome. Right. So there is an example of real ways that this – the tentacles of this business world are actually reaching into people who are making policy. And, and and I don't see how it could not be influencing them. Look, and making policy that really matters. Middle East energy policy, yeah. nuclear policy, Middle East peace processes. These are things that affect United States interests in the long term. Very long term. So it's not yeah. like they're selling off something. Oh, they're they're monetizing something that otherwise we wouldn't care about. They are selling our national interests and doing things that are to the detriment of this country in order to make a buck. And it's not even front page news, right? I mean, Hillary Clinton's Goldman Sachs speeches were like the story of corruption in, uh, you know, during the campaign. Now we find out that, you know, 
Trump's speeches are being edited, you know, by the Emiratis. And it's like it's it's what, 15th in terms of sort of right. headlines that day. And I think it's fascinating that in this whole conversation just now, we actually addressed the policy and what was changed in the speech. That actually is irrelevant on the issue of ethics. It's a matter of fairness. It's a matter of justice. It's a matter of applying the same standards to different people. It doesn't matter what the policy changes in the speech actually were. It's the fact that they did this with these conflicts of interest. Right. And I think that, you know, and to the point, too, of, um, it's, you know, I totally agree with you. It's, it's often surprising, I think, frustrating for a lot of people that this is not bigger news. It's complex. It goes to sort of, you know, um, tang- it goes on certain tangents and rabbit holes. There are so many other just like a clearer, sort of more spectacular, easier to understand things commanding our attention every day that compete for this stuff. And I think it's one of the reasons why it often sort of, you know, falls to the, to the bottom of the pile. Um, I will say, you know, it's not clear to me that any of this is going to lead to criminal prosecution. And I think the upshot of some of the reporting this week has been that it's while there is like an intensifying federal investigation here, it's not clear that anyone's been accused of a crime. In fact, Tom Barrick made very clear he volunteered, he says, to be interviewed by federal investigators and wanted that to be very, very clear in the New York Times. But it does seem to me that this is just a rich store of ammunition for Democratic presidential candidates who want to do exactly as you said, David, say, what was that about? Drain the swamp? Well, what do you call this? And I and I, I think that once we kind of get through this primary debate that's happening right now, Democrats are going to have a lot to work with to be able to hold this up and, and at the very least just sort of raise questions and suspicions in people's mind. And I don't know what Donald Trump's response to that is going to be. Yeah, and yet we have Democratic debates that had zero national security yeah. questions, well, zero foreign early. policy discussions. It's early. And Marianne Williamson just is still clear number one issue. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Feel the love, Shane. Feel the love. I want her on the podcast, you guys. Work it. Just going to say it. If you're listening, if you can sense me right now, I'm going to send you a message. Okay. You got that? Great. Uh, (laughs) With your healing crystal. You sent her a white healing light. And she'll respond. Um, All right. Let's move on to object lessons. Um, David, you're the guest. Why don't you go first? Yes, I have an object lesson, which is actually a word. Oh, uh, like specifically words. the word when used as an adverb in the <laughs> sentence, uh, something has run amok. Ooh. I have heard the word amok more in the last couple of days than I probably have heard in the last couple of decades because the president used it, saying that his pick as DNI, John Ratcliffe, could rein in intelligence agencies that, in his words, have run amok. And I thought, where have I heard that word? So a brief cultural and social history of the word amok. It is defined by Merriam-Webster as an adverb in a violently raging, wild, or uncontrolled manner as used in the phrase run amok. Run amok. So maybe the president did read the dictionary and, and pull that out of there. Uh, some of our listeners will be familiar with the Cambodian dish, fish and curry, often referred to as amok. Some other listeners who are familiar with 1990s cinema may appreciate the movie Hocus Pocus, Starring three madcap witches who get in all kinds of shenanigans. And the one scene that most people remember from that movie is when Bette Midler, one of the witches, says to the other two, we're going to run amok. And Sarah Jessica Parker goes off on amok, 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 (laughs) which prompts Bette Midler's character to punch her in the stomach. It's not a good scene, but it is one that got the word into our consciousness. memorable. But it also brought me back to Star Trek because one of the consistently – top-rated Star Trek episodes of all time from the original series was when Spock and Kirk got into a battle on the planet Vulcan as part of a ritual where we learned a lot about Spock's background. The episode name, Amok Time. You have just out-nerded Tammy. Wow. In terms of object lessons, which is impressive. Amok. Try to use that word. Amok Time? Amok Time is the name of the episode. (laughs) It's right. a muck time. <laughs> no. Yeah, have a drink. <laughs> oh, my goodness. Well, whatever it is, the intelligence community has just run about it. Mm-hmm. Amok. Flailing on Vulcan. Gina Haspel is. I have an object. And my object is, I guess I don't know which one of these things is my object. I guess um, a rap artist, a rapper, as the kids would call it. Mm. Um, ASAP Rocky. No idea anything about his ASAP music. ASAP Rocky. ASAP? Okay, great. A dollar sign app Rocky. Thank you for this pop call. So how do you pronounce the dollar sign? I think it's just ASAP. Okay. <laughs> See, this is educational for all of us. Shane, you crazy lesson. kid. I know. Anyway, 
less focused on him and how you pronounce his name, ASAP Rocky. Yes, ASAP Rocky. Um, uh, He's currently um, uh, facing criminal charges in Sweden. Um, And one of the people who showed up at his trial uh, was President Trump's special envoy for hostage affairs, um, because the president via Twitter has sort of weighed in on this in a rather bizarre way, apparently, because Kim Kardashian told Mm -hmm. him about it. You know, not to be outraged about uh, everything all the time, um, there are actual American hostages all over the world who really, really need a voice. And the special envoy is supposed to be those people's voices. Um, And so if I were, I don't know, the parents of somebody like Austin Tice right now who continues to be detained in Syria, the United States continues to believe that he is alive, uh, you know, and and seeing President Trump – uh, using this person's resources and ability to sort of shine light and focus on cases um, for something as dumb as this, I would be outraged. Um, and, I, and I really think that this is an area in which it's hard it's hard to not grow numb to everything that's going on. But we should be outraged by stuff like this. It's um, it's absurd and ridiculous and lacks the seriousness that um, you know, th- this role should have. And, uh, and it demonstrates that they are uh, just not focused on the issues that actually matter in a context in which um, there should be no partisan, you know, politics. There's no political disagreement here. Everybody believes that there are, you know, hus- dozens and hundreds of American hostages around the world who who should be brought home. And he is not a hostage. Let's be clear, right? I mean, right. He's, he's a defendant. He's a, a defendant in a criminal. He was caught on tape kicking someone. Right. I After think. A, there was some. One might say he happened. ran amok. <laughs> he did run amok. Um, and it wouldn't surprise me, by the way, if the hostage envoy agrees with much of what you just said. I'm just going to throw that out there. Just saying. Well, but that brings us to the end of the podcast. There's no more just saying today. That's mm. it. You've just said it. Said it all. We hope next week that you will still be on the podcast and not in confirmation hearings. I think I will probably be in confirmation hearings, but I don't know why I couldn't just step out to do the podcast. I mean – We'll put a mic in the skiff. Seems fine. Sure. Yeah. I mean, it's not a big deal. It's going to be fine. Uh, Rational Security is, of course, brought to you by Lawfare. You can find our show page at lawfareblog.com. You can find uh, a donation page for my fundraiser for DNI, uh, as well as Rational Security mugs. Tea towels. As Shane's lawyer, of course, he is not soliciting contributions <laughs> for his. Thelawfarestore.com. Is that what it actually is? You did you actually get that right? Mm, it Ben's, is. Ben's not here. It's no fun if he's. We not will here. not tell it's him. Not, it's not fun Next week, I'll make some. What's that? It's not fun if he's not here to be mad he's at not you. Not here. I'm going to make up something really. I'm going to make a code like amuck.com. Amok dollar sign ap.com. I'd shop there. I would too. I do every day. Uh, you can find us on Facebook. You can follow us on Twitter at RATL Security. Whenever you download the podcast, please be sure to leave us a rating and review. It really helps us out. Our audio engineer this week was Michaela Fogel. The show is edited by and produced by Jen Pontia Howell. Music this week by John Ratcliffe, who actually had a career as a rapper. At the time, the name he chose didn't really make sense to me, but I think I'm getting it. Puffery Daddy? <laughs> oh, no. I like it. Yeah, it fits I more like now. It. I think you have to grow into As it. As the person the who idea. thought it was ASAP Rocky, I, I really like this. <laughs> I support it. Well, I'm not so sure how Sophia Yan will feel about keys for Puffery Daddy, but we'll let her make that decision. On behalf of my good friend Susan Hennessy and David Priest, I'm Shane Harris. We will talk to you next week. Bye-bye. 